After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Real Love Podcast Series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with some of the world's finest teachers and thinkers, all exploring Sharon's new book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Real Love is a field guide for anyone seeking awakened living in the 21st century. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please visit www.BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm speaking to Dr. Emma Seppala. Emma is the Science Director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University, and Co-Director of the Yale College Emotional Intelligence Project at Yale University. She's the founder of the popular news site, Fulfillment Daily, which I look at quite a lot, and a frequent contributor to Psychology Today, Harvard Business Review, and the Washington Post. Emma is the author of The Happiness... Emma is the author of a wonderful book. It's called The Happiness Track, How to Apply the Science of Happiness to Accelerate Your Success, and has conducted groundbreaking research on mind-body practices for combat veterans and in the fields of meditation and compassion. I've known Emma now for many years, and I'm so thrilled to get to speak to you today as part of my podcast series for my new book, Real Love. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Sharon. I'm touched and honored to be here with you. We just saw each other uh, recently at Kripalu uh, Yoga Center, where we were both teaching, and I'm so glad we have this time today to talk about love and um, all the inspiring work that, that you yourself are doing. So let me start uh, with talking about The Happiness Track, which was a wonderful book. came out not that long ago. How long ago was that? Uh, about a year or so. Yeah. And uh, tell me if love figured uh, in your analysis of happiness, and if so, how? Yes, well, first of all, the the book itself was an act of love um, that stemmed from seeing a pain point 
in people's lives, that pain point being burnout, fatigue, stress, exhaustion Mm -hmm. that I saw not just in high achievers, but starting to see everywhere. Um, And how we've bought into this idea that the only way to be successful is to um, is to run ourselves into the ground, which is really an act of lack of self-love. And it is sort of an idea that you can't really take care of yourself if you want to achieve your dreams and be successful. When I looked at the data, I saw that was weird. We've got it all wrong. And um, I really wanted to to show that. So the the, the book is, is, is a, is a, is a, Hopefully a demonstration of that. And um, in terms of how love figures into happiness, it does so tremendously. And um, in fact, there are two ways of thinking of happiness in scientific terms. Um, I, mean, I mean, one way to, to, to do so is to think about it in terms of pleasure, uh, which I often define as sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm-hmm. But it could also be money. It could be power, fame, any of those material things that give you that short little burst, that little high, that little... Uh, feeling of, 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 of joy, um, but it doesn't last very long. We all know that that wonderful piece of chocolate, uh, it doesn't last. <laughs> and that wonderful, um, you know, that wonderful feeling you get from getting a, a raise or a promotion or your 15 minutes of fame, soon thereafter you're left craving for more. And so that is one type of happiness, which is called hedonic happiness, which is really the pleasures of the senses. But again, fame... Uh, money, uh, all, all the material goods can can uh, fit under that. The other type of happiness is eudaimonic happiness, which is more the type of happiness that's derived from a life of service, pleasure, love, meaning, compassion, and that that kind of happiness lasts. That kind of happiness leads to a life of fulfillment, not just happiness, but a a life of fulfillment. And yet. You know, all the marketing executives want us to focus on hedonic happiness. Hey, buy this car. Hey, buy this cream. You're going to look sexy. Hey, do this, do that. All these things that are supposedly going to give you those short bursts of joy. And yet, um, really, um, the best things in life really are free. And, and that life uh, led with a pur- sense of purpose, meaning, and, and love, and, and thinking of others beyond the self, reaching outward um, to, to have a life that revolves around more than just oneself is really the path to fulfillment. And also health and longevity, which I can talk about. But I don't want to, you know, go on for too long here. Um, yes, I actually uh, definitely want to get to health and longevity. But something in what you just said um, caught my attention. I mean, a lot of it caught my attention, but <clears throat> there was something I wanted to follow up on because um, it, it's kind of an intricate balance, isn't it? There's uh, the problem of being just obsessed with yourself and feeling that incredible sense of inner impoverishment and always trying to fill it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the remedy, so to speak, you know, is to learn to really focus on others and, and to find ourselves in others and be able to recognize um, our connection and so on. And then there are the people, it seems, who, who focus, uh, if not exclusively, certainly a lot on others and really neglect themselves and, yes. and that sense of self-care. So it's some kind of intricate balance in there. Absolutely. And, and you talk about that so beautifully in your book, Real Love. Um, and that's something that needs to not be forgotten, too. So in, this, in an aspiration to be there for others and, and that, that joy and that fulfillment that, that comes with it, we know it comes um, you cannot forget yourself um, because if you forget the self-care, the self-compassion, you pay the price too. You also will burn out. And that's why we often hear about compassion fatigue and things like that. 
or even parent burnout um, or uh, you know, any kind of burnout that can come from caregivers, um, those who take care of those with Alzheimer's and so forth, it's, uh, it, it, there's, a, there's a very fine line and a fine balance to be met here where self-care is needed. And it's not a selfish thing. It's actually profoundly healing and allows you to be there in, you know, so much at such a greater capacity for love and caring and joy and, and upliftment of others. Yeah, I, you know, of course, completely agree. And I'm, I'm curious, when you were working with veterans, when you were doing that research, which I'd love for you to describe some, did you also work with uh, people who were caregivers for veterans, either family members or um, professional people? I have. I have taught, um, I have taught caregivers of veterans uh, who sometimes will then suffer from uh, something called secondary post-traumatic stress. Um, and I, I experienced that to a smaller degree in the sense that when I was interviewing the veterans for my study, I, I was interviewing back to back to back all day long, and they were clinical interviews, and you do hear some terrible, terrible, terrible things, mm. uh, terrible traumas, and you hear a lot of them all day long for days at a time, and I really experienced just a very, very small experience of what a um, healthcare provider may be experiencing on a daily basis, um, and I can under could understand how that might lead to secondary trauma because some of those images they shared with me stayed in my mind. Mm. So definitely, um, it's it's so important for them. And then spouse is the same thing. Um, I know a spouse whose husband partook in our program. He got better, and as soon as he got better, his his spouse lost her um, lost her mind for lack of a better term. I mean, she mm -hmm. got very anxious. She got agoraph agoraphobia. She she couldn't go outside. She was uh, she couldn't be social. She couldn't leave her house. All of a sudden, and she, she he called me and said, I don't know what's going on. I've been doing well, up, holding up the family, taking care of our child, and now all of a sudden I'm falling apart. Yeah, yeah. And it's normal. You know, all of a sudden you can fall apart and you can yeah. let yourself heal from everything you've been carrying for these years of dealing with his trauma and the challenges on your marriage and family. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it as well in the, uh, you know, relatively small amount of work I've done with veterans and families. There was, in one case, the wife, and in a most striking case, the mother of a severely injured uh, soldier. And uh, they were both, especially the mom, going like a billion miles an hour. And they'd had to try to control medical care and uh, benefits and all kinds of things, and I was yeah. listening to them, and I thought, boy, if they ever slow down, you know, like, it would be a lot to face, you know, tremendous grief and sorrow and so much, and, and of course, we can, as human beings, we do have a capacity um, to, uh, not, not alone, but necessarily, but uh, often in community and uh, through inner strengths, um, be with all kinds of conditions in, in a state of love. Absolutely. And in those situations where you have to be there for someone else because no one else is, you do enter sort of a fight or flight mm -hmm. response. It's a stress response that's keeping you afloat, that's giving you the energy to deal with the crisis at hand. And yet there's only so long that that uh, can help you because after a while you, your systems do crash, your body, your nervous system, your um, immune function, all of those things do end up getting very burdened by that. So. Um, so important to remember that when we when we know of caretakers, when we see the people around us, many of them will start complaining of anxiety, and that's normal because they're in that fight or flight response. So, mm -hmm. 
So much, so much support is needed for them as well. So what, what was your research with the veterans? What were you studying? Well, <clears throat> at the time that we um, started our research study with, with Richard, Dr. Richard Davidson, we, um, we were looking around at, and really the treatments were not, that were out there, the traditional treatments were not really meeting the veterans' needs. Uh, some of them were, were, were being helped and many were not. About 50% of veterans who go through traditional treatment, either drug or therapeutic, come out the other side and there's no change for them. And then there are a lot of veterans who end up dropping out. And then there's those veterans who unfortunately choose uh, the the path of self-harming or self-destruction. And so we wanted to meet those veterans whose needs are not being met and see if we could offer them an alternative. And we wanted to offer some kind of contemplative practice. And yet we also found that with high anxiety, sometimes just closing your eyes and sitting there, meditation can be very triggering. very difficult or even impossible when anxiety is extremely high, which it is often cases with trauma. So we chose a breathing-based practice, which is based in the tradition of yoga, uh, called Sudarshan Kriya Yoga, uh, which is offered through Project Welcome Home Truth, a, a nonprofit. And the breath is powerful, as Sharon, you know so well. It, it, it goes right into the nervous system. We can calm our heart rate and our blood pressure in minutes just by lengthening our exhales. And the veterans uh, could see a result right away. They're a very practical population. They're a show me. Mm-hmm. They have a show me attitude, and they're kind of a no BS crowd. And so, if it, if they see results right away, they may stick with you. Otherwise, you know, they don't have time for you. And you know, within within minutes, they're like, oh, I haven't felt this calm in years. You know, they could mm-hmm. tell. So they um they did end up sticking with the program. Most of them, ninety percent stayed, which is actually very very high percentage. Yeah. Um, and, um, and after a week of practicing this breathing technique, um, it, they were able to, their anxiety was normalized and a year later it was, it was still normalized and, um, showing that there was some kind of acute benefit of the breathing, even though many of them didn't continue practicing afterward, although one of them did become an instructor of it and is now teaching other veterans, which is really awesome. But, mm-hmm. um, there is there's real healing to be found in contemplative practices that can be um, quite profound and can help normalize you in a sense it's it's not it wasn't so much healing as a return to normal or return to who they were and that's mm-hmm. what they say often um, I'm who I was before I left for Iraq mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's really beautiful so the healing power of breath um, and the this the Sudarshan Kriya Yoga is also offered through Art of Living um, in the general community. Mm-hmm. Um, but for veterans, it's free of charge through Project Welcome Home Troops, and that's really awesome. If if any veterans, if you know any veterans uh, or anybody listening, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's fabulous. That's really great. Um, it's I'm also struck by kind of the um, almost like the irony that uh, of science and love, because in part mm-hmm. what you're researching, I would say even even if you're not calling it that, is connection. You know, helping yes. people reconnect to themselves, connect to the larger world, connect to one another in a different way. Yes. Um, and uh, if, I, if I was up against the wall and I had to define love or real love uh, in you know, seconds, I would say connection, yes. a, a very real uh, or profound sense of connection. Yes, and we know from, from the research that social connection, after food and shelter, it's our greatest need from birth through old age, it predicts psychological well-being, it predicts physical health, it predicts recovery from disease, longevity. I mean, it is such a profound need for us, and yet 
we're seeing that um, one out of four Americans has no one to talk to. One mm. out of four Americans say they have no one to talk to about a personal problem. And the majority of Americans say they have only one person. And so you've got to think, wow, like, there, you know, I always just think it's always worth it to smile at the person at the cash register or, or to reach out to someone. You just never know who's, who's that 25% who's that of the population. And, um, you know, the other thing also, we know that, that a lack of social connection is, um, or, or profound loneliness is, is equivalent to speaking of obesity and high blood pressure mm. um, and on, on, on health and, and, and uh, well-being and longevity. However, here's the good news and what relates to your work, Sharon, is that the social connection I'm talking about has nothing to do with how many friends people have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with how it, how connected you feel on the inside. Do you feel belongingness with mm-hmm. those around? And mm-hmm. that is where what you teach is so profound, because you are through the practices you're teaching and through the through the beautiful book you wrote, um, bringing people's awareness to how they can feel connected mm-hmm. from within. And it starts, and you know, you beautifully say with connection to yourself, and. Um, and so we know, so you can be, you can be in New York City, know nobody, but feel connected to everyone. Or you could be a socialite at a party where you know everyone and you feel lonely in a crowd. Mm-hmm. It has everything to do with what's going on inside. And so, um, and, and you are, you're giving people tools for how to be connected on the inside. And what I discovered, thank you. And I, I really, um, I felt like I kind of crowdsourced the book in a way. And then I spoke, to, I tried to speak to so many people and really sought uh, stories and experiences life experiences from people and um you know what i also heard a lot was that you could be lying in bed next to somebody and feel very lonely uh you could be you know at the dinner table with people you've known you know your whole life and feel very lonely and um and in a moment uh it's not like a like a strategic effort or something that's highly rehearsed or anything like that in a moment you can feel a sense of connection yes Absolutely. And I mean, this is just from personal experience, but whenever I do feel loneliness and I, 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 I felt it a few times, I mean, you know, at the beginning when I, when I moved to China by myself at 21, I felt lonely. Mm-hmm. It was probably legitimate. Like I literally had no one to talk yeah. to. <laughs> um, and I just couldn't speak the language. Uh-huh. But nowadays when I feel lonely, I usually have to check in with myself and, and ask, how's your self-care been lately? Yeah. And usually it hasn't been that great because if my self-care has been good, I don't feel lonely, and I realize now it has everything to do with, am I a friend to me? If I'm a friend to me, I'm not lonely. Mm-hmm. If I haven't been a friend to me, I feel lonely. It's, it's quite funny. And, you know, going back to something you, you said earlier, which is uh, kind of a pivotal part of my book, is that that development of, of love and compassion for yourself is not a selfish act. We think of it as being self-centered or self-preoccupied or... People say, you should see my to-do list or how many people I have to take care of. I can't spend the time, say, offering love uh, mm-hmm. to myself or even meditating, which is an act of self-care. Uh, mm-hmm. But you think about that. You know, What about when we feel depleted and exhausted and overcome and um, just like so shattered by things? And what wherewithal or inner resource do we have to give to somebody else or offer to yeah. somebody else? And so um, it's not that, on the other hand, um, I argue in the book uh, that I don't think we necessarily have to love ourselves completely in order to love somebody else, you know, and uh, mm-hmm, then yeah. it becomes this sort of massive project and 
Right. Um, this idea of perfectionism once more rears its head. Right. And and also, it's hard. To, I think it's hard to conceptualize what that even means. Yeah. I think it's, it's easier to conceptualize like, have I have I paid attention to uh, my sleep, my my food, and my you know my whatever self-care it is that you do, whether it's a bath, meditation, a walk in nature, mm-hmm. um, have I been paying attention to it? Like those little steps are already much easier to conceptualize than self-love can seem so amorphous. And it's so funny, you know, that um, because of the kind of large pop associations with the word love, you know, romance mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. like this very funny moment in, in the life of my uh preparing to write this book um, on love was when an editor said to me, the love market is saturated. You know, like, it's too much <laughs> yeah. already. So, you know, and, and really those um, books tend to be about relationship and how to find one and how to perfect one and um, yes. even how to lose one, you know, in a skillful way. But uh, it's not only romance that uh, love is about. And so that's why I was thinking of the irony of, the word science and the word love kind yes. of going together. Well, absolutely. And um, I mean, and the thing with science too is that it, it really only measures such a small portion of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know much less than we experience in life. And so, you know, all, all that science can really do is categorize certain aspects of love. And, um, but it's, 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 it encapsulates, encapsulates so little of what the actual experience is because the experience of love is sometimes um, there's sometimes no words for it. It's mm-hmm. so, it's so profound, right? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, really it's inexpressible in, in so many ways and, and yet we try. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that what you talk about it with that regard to self love is, is so important um, in, in real, in your book, uh, real love, because I think many people struggle with that, um, if not the majority of people, no matter what crowd you're in, whenever you ask who here is self-critical, almost everyone raises their hand. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being self-aware, but when you're also, when by self-critical, I mean, are you beating yourself up? And most people are. And um, if you look at the impact of being having self-love on your relationships with others, on your health, well-being, and so forth, um, it's just so such an important message, at least in the West, at least in our society. Um, it, it's, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping a lot of people hear it. Does science tell us that love or connection, the sense of connection, um, diminishes the experience of physical pain? And does it tell us that it can make us healthier? I mean, how does that work? It's very interesting because a lot of people struggle with pain, and yet we also know that pain has a lot of psychological correlates. It has a lot of, it's, it's, um, psychosomatic in many ways. And, um, and, and oftentimes anger, um, correlates highly with physical pain and, and we, we, we store emotions in our body and in certain ways. And so we ran a, a small study at Stanford looking at the impact of uh, loving kindness meditation, uh, on pain patients. And we found that it decreased their anger and their increased, improved their relationships and therefore improved their pain. Now, this is a small study, but um, there's another study actually that also was conducted looking at the impact of loving kindness meditation on pain. So I think, you know, there, there are some really interesting, um, really interesting things to think about with regard to our sense of connection, um, the health of our relationships and our, 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 the health of our hearts mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and our physical well-being. 
Well, another word that is uh, often misunderstood is happiness. So I'm sure you faced that a lot when you were uh, first out speaking about your book and um, the confusion about the different kinds of happiness. And here, too, it's this idea that, oh, that's just endless pleasure-seeking. That's being conflict-avoidant. That's being unwilling to look at the tremendous pain and suffering that can exist and does exist in this world. And, and so you've been down that path, I'm sure, quite a lot. Yes, and, you know, on the one hand, happiness is, again, something unfathom, uh, unfathomable, inexpressible, something you know when you're feeling it and you know when you're not feeling it. Um, but on the other hand, when I'm asked, what's your personal definition of happiness? And uh, I, I say, you know, taking care, um, being of service in the world and balancing that with self-care. That is my personal definition because uh -huh. both in what I've seen in the science, what I've seen in my life, what I've seen in other people's life, that seems to be the key to fulfillment. And it makes so much sense evolutionarily speaking because we know we're extremely social creatures. Darwin said we could not have survived if we didn't have each other. We are profoundly connected. We need connection. And at the same time, uh, we, we, uh, so we can't, and we're living in increased isolation right now. People are living further and further from each other. Loneliness is the number one reason people are seeking out therapy. Um, we're feeling, we're facing a crisis of loneliness. And so, and we're wondering why, why there are so many cases of anxiety and depression and so forth. Um, but we're also facing a crisis of, of lack of connection. So I think the message again of, of, of connect, belong, care for others, be compassionate, and also remember self-compassion, self-care, mm -hmm. self-kindness, self-love. It's profound. That balance, to me, is the key. And balance, I think one of the um, issues with balance is that it's a complex, intricate state. It's not static. Mm -hmm. It's always moving. It's always changing. And it's not the same. I mean, as a parent, the balance of um, caring for others and caring for oneself is a certain thing, right? And always... Always in flux. Always in flux. I mean, for, for me, before I was pregnant, I was doing a lot of community service. I was teaching at a VA hospital in San Diego, really enjoying being able to um, be of service to the veterans there. And yet, uh, once I had my baby, I realized, okay, I can't go and do that anymore because I have a lot of responsibility here. Um, and so I, while I still now still teach and so forth, um, I can't do it as much. I can't do it every week the way I was. Um, and, and so I'm finding a new balance there. And then, of course, the self-care balance is, is very tricky in parenting and that I had to learn a whole new set of skills there. Am I, I mean, just with the basics, you know, am I sleeping enough? Yeah. Am I eating appropriately? Like those, those very basic things that you don't ask yourself when you're not also caregiving. Mm -hmm. I did a... Um like a Skype session with a, a friend's yoga teacher training group in California. And mm -hmm. I was trying to describe um, the term equanimity, which is one of those words that's very confusing. It sounds to us often like indifference or apathy or not caring or coldness. Um, within the uh, Buddhist psychology, equanimity really means balance. And it's... Uh, in the case of relationship, it's the balance born of wisdom, you know, so we might have maybe incredible, hopefully incredible compassion towards someone and also wisdom that tells us, you know what, I'll do everything I can to try to make things better and I'm not in control. I can't make someone change. And so I said that uh, the example that is sometimes written about in the Buddhist text is a parent whose child is now an adult and there's enormous love and 
connection and caring. And at the same time, the parent realizes, I can't control them. I can't just make them over into having the life I want them to have. And apparently there was a tremendous number of people in the room who had young children and they all started like raising their hand and, and, and saying loudly, no, no, it's not just older kids. It's not just, you know, adult kids. It's, yeah. it's young kids too. There's the love and there's the letting go all at the same time. Yep. yep. Very poignant lessons of life that can be very painful and yet are accompanied by hopefully growth and wisdom like that. The ability to let go, you're always letting go. Um, and and I think that is also a profound key to to happiness, but also to healthy relationships. Being able to to love and not cling. Yeah. So there's there's one of the clues about uh, differentiating what I might call real love and uh, what would ordinarily be more a state of attachment, not attachment in the current sort of Western psychological mode of like you know you want appropriate attachment, you don't want disordered attachment or whatever, but uh, attachment more in the sense of control, wanting to be in control yes, or, or feeling the need to be in control, which is, um, you know, if, if love is generosity, it's like generosity of the spirit, not leaving oneself out, but including oneself, then uh, when we add in that element of wanting to be in control, it is something else altogether. It's no longer in any way a freely given gift. Yes, absolutely. And yet, if you if you are that kind of partner in whatever whatever relationship it is, um, you you are you are a wonderful partner, mm-hmm. <laughs> truly. Um, I've experienced that even in in partnerships. Just how I mean, my current husband is is he lo- he's loving and yet he's not clinging. He's not controlling, and that is I experience that as not only true love but also as profound respect. Uh huh. How beautiful. Yeah. And that that combination, I think, is. Is very powerful because you feel free, and yet you feel loved, and therefore you feel more. You actually feel more attached, right, than if someone were trying to control mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also I believe very strongly in moment by moment change. You know, I don't um, discount those moments when we're really there, just because we are then swamped by our fears or concerns or, or whatever might you know come up, because we can keep returning, and that's why. The essence of my teaching of meditation practice, whatever method, is really being able to begin again, to let yeah. go of what has made us disconnected, what's overwhelmed us or distracted us, to be able to let go of that. And we can always, always begin again. And I think that's how transformation happens. It may not happen in the great breakthrough experience we want, where we say, oh, at 2.15, I love myself completely. It's all done now. <laughs> or, you know, I've forgiven everyone in my life. Thank goodness. And um, it's not like that. It's moments and moments and moments, and we're always having to begin again. Yeah, always having to learn again and again. Even currently, I mean, one of the struggles I'm having with my my two year old is that I, I I want to be there for him and really be loving and affectionate, and at the same time, he's entering a a phase where he's um, he's crying a lot and a lot of tantrums, mm. and he's trying to get his way. Like, oh, when mommy's around, he's like, I don't have to sit in my chair and eat, and I don't have to because she'll be there if I cry. And so I'm now learning, what do I do? And mm-hmm. uh, I had this, this dream, and I don't often pay attention to my dreams, but this one was kind of a lesson for me where I, I dreamt of this a cow, which I usually think of as very gentle animal. To me, it's like the maternal animal, right? They give us milk. We're, we basically drink their breast milk, and they are gentle. They don't hurt. They don't harm. They're just very docile, warm, loving 
creatures. And so in this dream, I saw her and I, I was petting this her and she was so soft and so loving and so gentle. And as I put my hand on her neck, I felt she's unwielding. Like, have you, if you I think we've all put our hands on the neck of a horse or a cow and felt that muscle, right? It's so powerful that I just, I woke up thinking, wow, like you can be loving and warm and gentle and unwielding and strong and powerful too. Yeah. How wonderful. So one of the um, explorations of love, it seems, is uh, how can we sit in the heart of, if not ambiguity, bringing in a lot of different elements together that mm -hmm. on the face yes. of it can seem contradictory, but they're really not. They, they really complement one another. That's balance. Yeah, that's balance. And when that balance is there, the self-love is there, right? Yes. The cow in that symbol, like that unwielding neck, is also a sign of, and I will keep grazing if I want to, or I will do whatever I need to do to take care of myself too, you know? Now, I'm wondering also when you uh, say you were doing the research with the veterans and you were working with um, caregivers, uh, did your definition or your sense of what love was shift or change? Actually, you know, Sharon, for me, that I've been working on the self-love part for a long time because I've always um, felt a need to give back and and um, and caring and being of service is something I've always wanted. It sort of drives my life. That's just what I want to do with my time. That's where I feel happiest, and that's where mm -hmm. I just feel like blessed, blessed as a person, and I just want to be able to help others feel better if I can. So I, I've always been motivated by that, but then I always have to be careful with the the burnout part, mm -hmm, the self-love mm -hmm. part, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, which is in part why I wrote my book, um, from some of the lessons I learned, but also, uh, you know, when I was with working on that study, um, I, I was also going through a divorce and mm -hmm. I was very lonely actually. And I was, I cared deeply about the study. I cared deeply about the veterans and there were a number of obstacles that were thrown in my way from various places. And it was so shocking to me because here I was, I was like, I'm just trying to do the study. Well, mm -hmm. you know, and these obstacles were being thrown in front of my, my feet all the time. I had to push my way through. And, um, and at the same time, I really, at that time, you know, I, I lost a lot of weight and I, I couldn't sleep. I was getting some of the trauma symptoms, in fact, mm -hmm. so immersed in their world. And I realized, wow, like I, I need to, I really need to balance that um, and keep taking care. And, and so it was, uh, I learned about, about the balance you, you, the balance you talk about so much. So, um, and, and how, how important that is. Well, it's really fascinating. You know, I, I spend... Uh, I don't know if it's like a larger proportion of my time. It's certainly a very powerful and, and fulfilling portion of my time working with caregivers of, of different kinds. I was um, part of this four-year program through the Garrison Institute in Garrison, New York, working with domestic violence shelter workers. And um, that program has sort of evolved to working with international humanitarian aid workers. And then there's the stuff I do just as the invitations arise, you know, a VA hospital here or prison there <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. school teachers or people who will come to just an open retreat or workshop who really come from a tremendous number of, you know, walks of life and, and uh, livelihood and so on. And, um, and I've just been watching uh, kind of the current uh, wave of interest in empathy training in this country, which we yeah. sorely need, I believe, as a nation, uh, no doubt. But I keep thinking, well, I've worked with a lot of people who have plenty of empathy. Yes. You know, um, really extraordinary empathy. They're burning out for some other reason. So 
mm-hmm. um, what what would be uh, of service to them? You know, what would be a contribution to their well-being? Not more empathy training for sure, um, yeah. but something else. Yeah, and, and well, it's interesting too um, when we're looking at data with physicians and uh, healthcare providers, and they're burning their their burnout rate is fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it's very high. It starts in medical school, by the way. And But one of the reasons that the data points to is that they're actually not allowed to express their empathy because they have to move from one person to the next. Mm. So, hey, sorry, you've got three months to live. Okay, on to the next one. You know, They're not actually given the time mm-hmm. for the human moment. And when you're not given the time for the human moment, it actually makes you burn out faster because all of a sudden they're turned into these sort of robotic figures, pharmacists or surgeons basically is what they end up having as a role. And, and the human moment is completely removed. Mm. And um, that actually harms them tremendously. Uh, and, and that's what the data is showing. And yet when when the healthcare providers are allowed and able to show empathy and compassion, we see that patients tend to return less into the emergency room. They, they, they let, tend to heal better and faster. Wow. So it's just uh, tremendous when you look at this impact of, and the necessity for empathy. And of course, at the same time, like we've been talking about, that that need for self-care is essential, whatever that is, um, in order for all of these professions to be able to balance um, the tremendous work they're doing and their ability to stay sane, really. So I just want to take a moment to to take that in. So the the care provider themselves feels more whole because they've gotten a chance to express it, and the patient or the recipient. Uh, seems to be healthier so they're quite yes, affected by that moment of expression as well yes and, and and yet you know how many of us have gone to the doctor's office and they don't even look in your eyes they're just looking at your charts and the computer screen and you feel where is the healer aspect in that relationship it's a transactional relationship between a pharmacist or a surgeon and you but it's not there's no it's transaction it's not a like a real exchange and if you think about Traditional forms of medicine, Tibetan medicine or Ayurvedic medicine or other forms where they, the doctor lays their hands on you, like they listen to your pulse. I mean, in Tibetan medicine, this seems shocking to people that it's so intimate that they actually taste the flavor of your urine mm-hmm. to see what's going on. I mean, it is, it's profoundly intimate, and yet there's, and it can seem very, um, what's the word, it can seem primitive to a Western mind, and yet there's something to be said about touching your patient, maybe not physically, but looking at them. Um, Dr. Doty, who's the center of, uh, who's the director of our center of, of compassion at Stanford, he often tells the story of how 80% of the patients coming in through his door don't need back surgery. They've made it all the way into a neurosurgeon's office at Stanford University, and he sends them away. He mm. said they needed someone to hold them. They needed someone to listen to them. They needed a hug. And yet everyone else has proceeded to send them up the line to get surgery. Mm. Well, so when I, I wrote uh, Real Love, it has three sections. The first section is about cultivating love for oneself, and what a good idea that is. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, and of course, the, the meditations and exercises. And then the second section is about love for an other, whether it's a partner or a friend or a client or um, mm-hmm. colleague, you know, parent, child, dog. Um, and then the third section is about love for all beings everywhere, basically the culminating in love for life itself. And so for some people, I know that that um, 
really profound sense of connection to all of life happens uh, not even through the sense of, of beings, but through nature. And uh, I wanted to hear your views on that, the kind of connection, even awe, sense of wonder that we can develop, sense of greater belonging that we can develop through nature. Well, nature is, we know that just being out in nature um, decreases our anxiety or depression and, and improves our well-being dramatically, and yet we, we often forget that, and so we don't actually go and spend time in nature. Um, but but one, of the, one of the ways it does so is by, by increasing our feeling of awe, which is definitely something that is being researched currently. Um, but also, if you're, if you're in nature, you're in a place of connection. If you walk through the woods, everything is connected. The trees are connected. I mean, everything. It's, so it's, it's not like you intellectually have to fathom it or think about it. You're experiencing it because all of a sudden you're part of it too. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot, of the, a lot of the understanding that we get in nature is not intellectual. It's, it's visceral. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's intuitive, for lack of a better word. And, um, and research does show that when we spend time in nature, we do feel more connection to others. What is it about it? And, and one, I mean, one hypothesis is that we're really going back to where our, our, you know, where, where our ancestors lived up to only 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've always been in nature, and now we're living further and further and less naturally than ever. Um, but, but when we do spend time there, we remember who we really are and how connected we really are. So I'm in New York City right now, I don't know if you can hear the sirens, so uh, does looking at the sky count? Or I think that looking at plant? the sky... I don't know, what can I do? Yes, I think plants definitely helps in the sky, definitely broadens our perspective. Because sometimes when we're sitting between four walls with a screen or tablet in front of us, our perspective is, is definitely shortened. And in fact, um, research shows that in Japan... 90% of the kids have myopia because they're always looking at a very short distance in front of them, whereas looking at a longer distance, like when you're in nature and you're looking out on the horizon, really improves actually your phys physical perspective, but I think that can also shift your mind. I mean, you can do some beautiful meditations just looking at the sky. I mean, I think that's great because um, there's also a, a book that I quote in, um, in my book, uh, which I think is, uh, you don't even... It's a great book, although if you chose to, you don't have to go beyond the title, which is so great, which is Bowling Alone. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's about the breakdown of, of different social institutions, like bowling leagues, where we used to meet one another. And it's certainly in these days when people talk about how do you get together and, and have any kind of conversation with somebody where you're coming from different political points of view. Um, maybe it used to be the bowling league, and there are not so many of those anymore. Um, you know, so between the the breakdown of certain institutions and uh, the lack of kind of nature in a lot of people's lives and um, the sort of cutthroat environment where in, and I think very fundamentally, the places where taught happiness is to be found. You know, so the ways we do devote our, our time and our energy to getting happier could be sadly mistaken. Uh, between all of that, it seems like we we need something kind of radically different in order to to go on, not just each of us ourselves, but as as a society. Yeah, it's it's both radically different different what we need, and also extremely natural. And uh, it's uh -huh. coming back to who we are, coming back to our roots, which is which is connection to one another, which is 
um, a pace of life that's um, that's more in line with our circadian rhythm, with nature, um, where where we're living in a more natural way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's, it's not doesn't seem like brain science is needed here. <laughs> yet we need it somehow to buy <laughs> this. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I mean, we seem to need it for meditation as well, which is, yes. uh, I'd add, because I, I believe, you know, obviously so strongly in uh, kind of the skills training aspect of meditation, you know, that uh, it is totally natural. You know, we think of it as woo-woo and weird sometimes or esoteric and uh, so different, but it is completely natural. And yet it's uh, we've lost touch with certain skills about presence and balance and awareness and love, uh, which in itself could be seen as a kind of skill, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to the degree that love or connection comes from paying attention differently. Uh, we know attention certainly can be trained. That's what meditation is. And so um, we, uh, we need to sort of look at how we spend our time and see if uh, some of that cultivation or that, that commitment, you know, to uh, the the different elements of life that we know will, or we suspect will make us a lot happier and stronger um, and actually put them into practice. Absolutely. And it really shouldn't be that foreign because if you look at any child, do they have that, like a child, a baby, like they're full of love. They're full of attention. They're full of uh, wonder. They're full of connection. They don't care if they know your name. They'll feel connected to you if you play with them or they just, it's um, there. There's a sense of belongingness that's there, and if they have children, have it. We all have it because we all were, were children once. You know, so it's 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 less a question of training as undoing, perhaps. Mm-hmm. That's great. So as part of this podcast series, I'm asking everybody, um, what word comes to mind for you when you think about love? One word only. <laughs> well, you can give me more than one word. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's 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 compassion and self compassion, uh-huh. that combination. All right, thank you. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we we close? I just wanted to share you know the results of the study we conducted on the loving kindness meditation. Uh-huh. You provided us uh, when I was a graduate student at Stanford. And um, just the results that we found was that in seven minutes alone, the participants felt more connected, felt uh, more connected, uh, felt connected to strangers, um, more connected than another group that did, you know, different variations of, of meditation that were not, were just not real meditations, uh, different visualizations, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just, just how quickly you can shift from within through these types of practices, how nurturing they are. I remember one participant, he was in the other room and we could hear what was going on and I had a little video just to make sure everything was going right and I could see what was going on. And all of a sudden he's in the middle of the meditation and I hear, oh yeah. <laughs> and I look over and he's just blissed out, feeling the love. <laughs> Share that. I'm thrilled. That's so wonderful. Um, so thank you so much for for being here today. It's, it's really, uh, it's always great to talk to you and uh, it's great to dwell in these in these uh, worlds of love. Yes, it's really my profound pleasure and favorite topic. Mine too. <laughs> uh, so anybody who's listening, you can learn more about Emma's work 
by visiting her website at Emma Seppala, that's E-M-M-A-S-E-P-P-A-L-A.com. And I really recommend that you get a copy of her, of her book, The Happiness Track. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Join us this summer for the Real Love Challenge. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. May all beings be happy.